On this episode of the Peter Panda Podcast, we're hitting Maryland's eastern shore with wildlife biologist Steve Kendrott. We're talking all things Chesapeake Bay, from their non-native sika deer, to the destructive history of the invasive South American nutria, to the alien-like life cycles of the famed local blue crab. Steve's an expert on just about everything here, and our time spent with him this past October was nothing short of educational. Put on your waders, grab your climber stands, and all the thermocells you can carry, and join us as we head into the marsh, one of the most unique places I've yet to experience. I'm not too worried about it. How do you pronounce your last name? Kendrat. Kendrat, D-R-A-T. O-T. Kendrat. Yep, there you go. You not Kendro, with... like many people assume. I'm not French. <laughs> Kendro. <laughs> uh, but it's pronounced Steve Kendrat. Kendrat. Drot. So yep. it is. There's a dog. R-O-T. There's a species of dog. The Drot Hauer. Have yeah. you heard of those? Yeah. Yeah. Drot Hauer. Pretty... It's like a, a souped up um, wire hair. Yeah. German short hair, wire hair. Are you related to that dog? No. No. Not that I'm aware of. My grandfather had a saying that would probably get me in trouble with a lot of my friends about uh, he was an English setter guy, and his saying was that there was them German dogs wouldn't hold, a, wouldn't be a patch on a real setter's ass. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Fighting fight words. Those are fighting words because I know those uh, Drothauer. They're serious got, people. Oh, they're very serious people. Yeah. I think the blood with the bloodlines and the breeding and the competitions. Yeah. I've got one friend, a trad bow hunter. Chris, oh, yeah. Chris Blaskowski, badass dude from Western Montana. Yeah. Um, I say he's a trad bow hunter because you are a trad bow hunter. He has a Drothauer. Am I saying it right? I think that's how they say it. I just Drothar. call it R. I just call it Drot. Drot. <laughs> he's got one, and it is a very. I think he has a couple now, but his first one um, was a super impressive, highly educated, sophisticated dog, and it would do anything. Yeah, it would it would go tree a mountain lion if you told it to. It would blood trail if you told it to. Mm-hmm. It would do the field trial stuff. I know he has elk hunted with it with his dog by its side, by his side. Oh wow! So just a, like a really sophisticated. Uh, they're all around yeah, dog. They're intense, and their owners are even more intense. <laughs> and so, and so, what breed is Hank here? He's a Llewellyn Setter. Llewellyn. Who's it's Llewellyn? a it's a sort of line of English Setter. Mm-hmm. Uh, the American Kennel Club (AKC) considers them an English Setter, but the Field Dog Stud Book, which is what kind of registers all of the the real sporting dogs for hunting, you know, field dogs, uh, recognize them as a separate breed. But it's just a line bred. English setter basically that's that can be traced back to some early dogs that he's gorgeous he lo- if I didn't know about a Llewellyn setter I guess I'd I'd see him guess that it was some kind of an English setter or something and sort. He, he he is really it's real close yeah and he's very atypical um a lot of people would think if they know bird dogs would th- look at him and think he's a Gordon but Gordon, Gordon setters, yeah. Gordon setter, yeah. Gordon setters have this characteristic uh, brown muzzle, you know, black head, but they're pretty much black and brown all over their body. Their feet might have a little brown on them, but but they don't typically get the tricolor that. that yeah, he's has. got some white spackling. Yeah, 
And he's uh, very dark for a, a Llewellyn or an English setter. Uh, I don't think I've seen too many that have more black on him than, than this guy. Well, he's got a lot of personality in him. Yes, he does. He's a good boy. He's uh, out of Paint River Llewellyn's, who's uh, – that's got to be some family name. Or yeah, something the like the that. I think the originator of the line was a his name was Llewellyn. That's what breeders do. If they breed enough dogs, they yeah. they slap their name on it, and yeah. that's what archaeologists do. Too. Right? Yeah. Like, well, you discover something, put your name on it. Yeah. Like the Harrison Mountain Goat. Right. Is a mountain goat, a pre Ice Age mountain goat that they find remnants of into Mexico, and. They categorize it and treat it as a different species of the mountain goat we know today. But it really isn't different. It just was a older version of what we have today. And right. the guy that found it put his name on it. And now we now we talk about the Harrison Mountain Harrison's mountain goat and common day mountain goat. So when you talk about native mountain goat habitat, you know, they say like, well, it's not Mountain goat's not native south of Colorado. Right. It's like, well, how far back do you want to go? How far back do you want to go? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's just, that's true the world over when you talk about native and non-native yeah. things. Like, well, what day, what day are we talking about? Like, what, what point in time are we referring to as that's the normal ecosystem mm -hmm. and everything since then is non-native? Um, that's totally a different conversation. <laughs> We're sitting in Steve's house here in, uh, what do we call this? The East shore of the Chesapeake Bay. Eastern shore. Eastern yep. shore of the Chesapeake Bay. We're in Maryland and it's October now. It's October 2nd. Can't believe it. And we're in the midst of a hurricane. We're on the tail end of a hurricane. Yeah. Ian paid us a visit. Ian. I-A-N. Isn't that how they're spelling that one? Mm-hmm. Ian's one of those names that could be spelled a couple different names, a couple different ways, I think. Um, so it's extremely rainy and windy, and it's kind of painful to look at the extended forecast because <laughs> next week our stay here is very – monsoon i guess not monsoon hurricane-esque it's uh, a lot of wind and rain and right when we leave next week you might get one nice day. i think i think i do <laughs> i think wednesday is going to be nice uh but right after that it goes back up into the 70s and sunshine and i tried to find the silver lining in that and i was like well that sounds nice but there's definitely going to be more mosquitoes out when we're hunting if we were to be hunting later into next week yeah, for sure. We'll probably get a pretty good crop coming off here. Uh, the other next. morning when we climbed up into the tree stand, right at first light, it was still dark outside, mm -hmm. and the mosquitoes came out thick. Yeah, you got to turn that thermosel on on the walk-in or else you're in trouble. Uh, well, the nice thing, though. Out, I just hid into my clothing, and I yeah. sprayed down with some DEET. Yeah. And I was like, I, don't, I was so frustrated with them. I hate mosquitoes, and they seem to really like me. I was so frustrated, I sprayed was like, I, this is probably going to scare deer away, and I don't care. Right. I'm not not dealing with this. Yeah, that's great stuff. If it doesn't cause cancer, it doesn't work. So. It definitely <laughs> causes cancer, and it'll def if it melts your rain gear, exactly, it's not good for 
your human anatomy. I've ruined a lot of stuff with DEET over the years. Yeah, man. Dashboards of vehicles. Uh, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Fortunately, not my own. You ever hear the stories about people that trucks. leave bear spray containers on the dash of their cars? Yeah. And then they'll, like on a hot summer day, the can of bear spray will explode. That would be bad. Yeah, you're going to want to get a new vehicle <laughs> after that one. Hopefully, you're not driving it when it happens. God. Yeah, can you imagine? <laughs> I've never even been downwind of it, um, but people have certainly accidentally experienced bear spray encounters that didn't want to. I haven't either. Closest I've probably come is I, I had some guys on my crew that, that like to grow real hot peppers, and they uh, they made some breakfast sausage at work one day, and <laughs> you couldn't walk in the kitchen it without got, getting got in your eyes out. and your nose. Yeah, it was it was terrible. Nobody wants to eat this. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I've never got that appeal of burning your throat out. But yeah, that just sounds. Tr- I like hot food, but there's a fine line there. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Steve, you're uh, a very interesting guy, and we're going to dive into all the different avenues of your life, hopefully here, and your your work and career, and your hobbies and interests here on the eastern shore of the Chesapeake Bay. Um, but why Why am I here? Why are we here? I came here to hunt sika deer, which is a small little deer species from Japan. Yep. And they have, uh, they've lived here in the Chesapeake Bay for over 100 years, right? Yeah, yeah, it's been about a hundred years, I think. Is it early not, it's knocking on a hundred? It's right about there. I think it's probably a little over at this point. I think it was the early nineteen hundreds that it was uh, that they were introduced, and I don't know. The older you get, the faster time goes, and I realize that that uh, you know, two thousand was twenty two years ago. God, I know. <laughs> I remember uh, the millennium. I went uh-huh. to a black tie part. I think I was, well, I could calculate this really quickly. I was 11 years old. I was born yeah. in 89. Okay. So I'm 11 years old at the turn of the millennium. Yeah. And we went to a black tie. Our whole family went to a black tie millennium party. And I don't remember much from 10 to 20, really. Even into the 20s is hard to remember. But uh, I remember this, this party. The Millennium mm-hmm. Party, and it was a big deal. And it was at the Drackett Mansion in Cincinnati. And the Drackets are the P&G family of Cincinnati. They got that Windex money. Okay. Anyways, it was a very nice party. And I remember moments of that party so clearly. <laughs> like, there's just these, like, profound – or iconic moments throughout life where you're like yeah. you remember it but yeah 22 years ago a few of those that largely i've forgotten much of my life <laughs> 22 years ago my sister inherited the the photographic memory mm. not me so much so the sika deer yes how in the hell did a little tiny goofy looking elk deer, they're little elk. elk yeah the same same genus as elk Service so an elk is in the deer family, mm-hmm. but these sika deer are even close, more closely related to an what we know as the Rocky Mountain elk or a Roosevelt yep. elk than it would be to a whitetail. Yep, same genus as a as the American elk. And they kind you would kind of know that if you looked at their small antler configuration because mm-hmm. they have a a brow tine similar to an elk. Yep. 
Um, and they communicate similar to an elk with mews and bugles. Yep, very vocal. I heard my first Sika, wild Sika deer bugle last night from the tree stand. It's pretty and intense, it rocked it? me. Yeah. I heard it. We Waller was in a tree a couple hundred yards away. And before I even like got a text out to him, I was like, did you hear that? He, he texted me and he was like, that was a real one. <laughs> I remember when I started hunting them in 2002, which was like. That's when you moved here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that was before, you know, YouTube and all that stuff. So I'd never heard one before. And everyone was describing it to me. And I was going out trying to figure out you know what was that one and I, there's all kinds of stuff that makes yeah yeah the noise bird, in the marsh there are, there's a hundred yeah. different birds making noises out there and frogs and insects exactly and, and everything it, i heard i was like is that one yeah is that one that's where i'm at in and my then journey. i heard one bugle and i was like oh mackerel this is this is the uh moment i experienced last night and uh-huh. it rattled my bones yeah. i was like that was it that was definitely it yeah and um, if you've never heard a Sika deer bugle before, it's not so much a, if you're familiar with elk bugles. I guess there are some similarities to the notes they hit in the, right. but it's more of a a whis a, a high pitched extended whistle, whistle, yeah, uh, with a growl at the end. Yep, it's got and some if guttural I tones. Blow the microphone out right now. I would try to Im- imitate it. Maybe in a minute I'll we'll put the headset on the table and I'll try. <laughs> but it's a high pitched followed by a Yeah. And they almost always do it in threes or fours. So it's a yep. it's a you it's can't a sequence. You can't uh confuse it with anything else once you hear it. And uh so anyways, these little elk like deer from Japan, Asia were introduced to the Chesapeake Bay area of Maryland a hundred years ago, accidentally or on ten. No, on purpose. They were uh, there's an estate on an island at the James Island at the the uh, mouth of the Choptank River, and uh, they had brought them in as sort of you know lawn ornaments, kind of. And were uh, they fenced in? I don't think they were. Uh, and so they left the island, uh, got to the mainland, and established a population that since has become well-established. Uh, you know, Dorchester County, Maryland, is, is uh, very wet, especially the southern half of it. Uh, really a lot of coastal marshes, um, and they thrive in that environment. They do really well. Uh, it's pretty marginal whitetail habitat, um, and so the Sika deer didn't have a whole lot of competition there and they really kind of took off. So there was a unutilized perfect Sika deer habitat that they just happened to be accidentally introduced to a hundred years ago mm-hmm. and they took to it yep. really well. And this is now today, am I correct in saying this is the largest population of wild Sika deer in the world? I don't know about in the world, but certainly in the in the U.S., you know, you can go to Texas and hunt high fence sika deer. That doesn't this is count. Probably the largest free ranging 
Sika herd in, in the U.S. I guess what I was getting at was the population here exceeds and thrives more than the home turf bloodline in Japan. I don't know if that's maybe safe not to true. say because okay. there, there are places in Japan where they're they're uh, I don't think that they're hunted as extensively there, and there are places where they're extremely abundant to the point where you know they're kind of like a pest species in urban areas and that sort of thing. So, so am I correct in saying um, these deer are actually the the strain of Sika deer we have here is actually from a small island off of Japan. So some, sometimes people think of Sika deer as a mature, a mature Sika deer being a four by four. And in fact, the ones we're hunting here are a different subspecies than these bigger ones. Yeah, I know. I, I don't know the genealogy really well with all the different subspecies, but I know like the the subspecies that originate from the mainland of Asia, you know, the continental uh species or subspecies tend to be quite large and so like that's the species that's been introduced to new zealand and those are probably they're bigger than whitetails uh you know they're probably 250 pounds dressed out big, um, like big mule deer style deer. yeah probably yeah. and and uh quite large antlers as well same sort of configuration although you tend to get more more of them will develop an eighth you know the two sets of extra sets of point that yeah make it i have four I've by had four. to revert my thinking uh back to the gross point count yeah everything out west is four by four six by six right. and we're back to these because where i grew up in ohio everything oh, eight point whitetail ten yep. point whitetail and when we talk sika deer in maryland we're on the gross count yep. as well so we talked yep. about six point Right. Sika deer, which is a three by three. That's pretty simple math there. Um, but you're saying that the subspecies, the, the thread of them we have here is, is not that mega big Sika deer Correct. we have in New Zealand. It's a smaller Sika deer. Um, there's one hanging in uh, your garage right now and it's very small. Yeah. It looks like a fawn whitetail. Yeah. And it's a full-grown yeah, female sika deer, which we call a hind. Correct. Where do they come up with that hind? I, th I think they've borrowed some of the sort of European terminologies for the male and females. So they call the 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 males stags and the females hinds. Um, is that true with red deer? Yeah. It is. Okay. So, yeah. I've never heard of hind until this trip. Yeah. Well, and it's funny, too, because a lot of folks that aren't familiar with that like around here, they they make a couple mistakes when they refer to Sika deer. One, though, a lot of people call them Sitka deer. That's not right. It's not right. <laughs> There's no T. And then a lot of them call them Heinz, H-I-N-E-S. They don't realize there's a D in there. But, oh, it's uh, like ketchup. Yeah. But it's not. It's, it's not. a hind, like your, your hind your, quarter. Yep. Yeah, that's how I've. And maybe I'm just being too phonetical with all this, but it is interesting that the locals call them Sitka deer. Sitka. By, by and large, Sitka. Not with a T, though. A just K. a Sitka. Sick, or like Sika. Like I'm Sitka deer hunting. Ooh, I'm not. No, I've never gotten. That's why I don't call them Sitka. Yeah, what Sika the hell's wrong deer. with you? Um, but it's mostly confusing, and this has been touched on before, because the Sitka 
blacktail. Right. It, and that's completely, completely different, different yeah. species. So Sika deer, S-I-K-A. And the males are stags. The females are hinds. And why do they thrive here? Is it just a habitat opportunity? They just exploited well, it. A, they're almost. very adaptable. Um, you know, they live in all different kinds of habitats. The places they come from are nothing like the marshes here to my knowledge. Um, oh, really? Yeah, and the places that Sika deer live in other places, you know, New Zealand and whatnot, don't tend to be dry ground. Deer. Yeah, they're, they're dry they're grounders. In the mountains and stuff. So I think they're just very adaptable. Um, and they eat anything. They're like goats. You know, the, some deer species really need high quality food. Whitetails are one of them, uh, which is why I think they don't do so well in the kind of habitat that Sika deer do well in here in Dorchester County. Um, so yeah, they'll eat anything. In fact, I was, uh, clearing a poison ivy vine off of a tree that I was going to hunt uh, last week and I pulled it off in the morning when I came back in the afternoon the deer had come through Sika deer had come through and eaten all the poison ivy leaves <laughs> off the vine very very resourceful <laughs> yeah. ungulate yeah so they're not uh I think of them as a, a water deer which there are some species of deer you know in other parts of the world that like a sandbar right lives in a it's a I call them water deer right I think a lot of people do you're saying the Sika deer aren't always like that, but they are here. Yeah, they've taken to it here. Well, yeah, they're very, uh, they're so cool. Um, describe to me a Sika deer. If, if you're familiar with a whitetail, a buckskin colored whitetail, these look quite a bit different, not just in size, but in color and shape and everything. Yeah, they're a lot, uh, well, they're pretty small, uh, for starters, they probably, a, a mature stag will probably, uh, maybe, I don't know, two thirds the size of a whitetail, if it's a good one. That sounds uh, generous. Yeah. Yeah. But so like a, a really good mature stag can tip the scales around a hundred pounds dressed. A few will push 120 in that ballpark, but yeah, but you're talking about, a an um, that's the monsters. Yeah, average the average ones. ones are dressing out probably 75 to 85 pounds. pounds and then yeah. the females, the hinds, will dress out 45. I have I shot one a couple of years ago that I think probably was close to 70 pounds. It was a really big one. Big girl, yeah. Yeah. How much do you think the carcass in the garage weighs? Mm, she was probably 40, 45, I would guess. And that's with the hide and hooves yeah, and head. That's field dressed. Yeah, just a field dressed weight. Yeah. So they're small. It's a little deer. Um that's that's why I've come here to hunt them. Um they've been here for over a hundred years. And when did the state of Maryland decide to treat them as a game species instead of you know, a lot of non native stuff like nutria, which I'd like to touch on with you. Sure. Which you've spent uh your career managing and eradicating why was the Sika deer deemed a valuable resource and not a uh, detrimental invasive species that's a good question and i'm not exactly sure on the timeline but i do know that when i first moved to maryland in the early 2000s the bag limits were very generous for Sika deer they were 
they were managing them much more like uh, not to eradicate, but certainly to control their population. And they weren't concerned about as concerned about the sort of sustainability of the population. If I think at the time, if they could have pressed a button on their desk that made Sikadir go away, they would have. They would have. But people really started to get interested in in hunting them, and and that uh, you know over the course of it was probably not too long after I started hunting them that they started uh, getting a lot more conservative with the the bag limits. Um, Do you attribute this to your own hunting success? And they were like, I this don't know. They, they gonna... were worried. I don't know. I don't think so. I had I had good luck the very first season, and then it took me a while to to sort of tell tell me about that your first season of Sika hunting. Yeah, I uh, I had the good fortune when I took the job that I did here for twelve years, uh, a nutrient eradication project, um, which was a federal gig. Yep, yep. It's working. I worked for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and we were doing a project uh, with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service at Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge and surrounding areas. So, I moved here. Uh, had some friends that owned a a big chunk of ground in Southern Dorchester, is kind of a second home, and and uh, they offered me the chance to stay there the first year, year and a half or so, you know, to help look after the place and keep the grass cut and stuff. And you, and I you could didn't have there. a home here? You, no, you didn't no, have, I yeah. moved here from uh, the previous job. I was at uh, uh, the airports in D.C., so I was in, like, uh, Rockville, Maryland, suburbia. Hmm. So sounds, I came over here. Awful. Yeah. 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 <laughs> It's the season one. We're uh, over here on some friends' land. Yeah, and so they had 250 acres of beautiful marsh, the kind of stuff that you've been spending in this week. Um, and it was full of sika deer. And uh, I had heard a stag bugling. I didn't know anything about them. I just, you know, got my bow and went out and started trying to get set up on them. And I had this stag that every day. Every evening I'd hear him bugle, and, and I was just never quite close enough. If I went to where I heard him the day before, he'd be back where I was the previous day, and we just kind of, Little over the course elusive. of a couple of weeks, yeah, uh, he would just elude me. And then one day, uh, I don't know what changed, but he wound up pretty close to me. And I can't remember at that time. I don't think I had started calling at that point. I think I just happened to get in the right spot. And I suspect he probably had uh, uh, consumed all the available females that was there. <laughs> and so he was on the prowl it's and he started, started working his way up the, uh, the wood line and he wound up stepping out at about four yards and uh, I didn't know what I was looking at. It turned out to be a really nice, mature six-point stag. But to me, it was, you know, half the size of any deer I'd ever seen. So I nothing, no big That was probably to your thing. advantage. That I think probably, so, yeah. I didn't get, like, Because <laughs> I've since missed a lot of them. <laughs> fever, yeah. Um, was this with the trad bow? Yeah, yeah. And have you always been a trad bow hunter? Pretty much. I, I shot my first deer in high school with a compound, and then in, in uh, college I switched to a, a recurve, and I've been shooting that ever since. Yeah, you're pretty diehard about it. Yeah, I don't know if it's diehard or if I just think it's, the, for me, it's the right weapon, you know. It, it, I shoot it well, and, and it's 
I've never felt real comfortable with a, a compound in my hands and the trigger releases and it's You're telling just, me you feel more lethal with your recur like that's the you feel like as a predator on the landscape like that's your the weapon you should be using because i'm quick to say that's that's artsy and cool and i respect trad bow hunters for the nostalgic part of it but certainly all of them could be more effective with a compound bow but you're saying that maybe you don't feel that way. i don't know that i would be personally you know and and to me it it uh I need them close. I, I'm not taking shots over 20 yards. Yeah. And so that requires me to sort of interpret the environment differently and make sure that when I set up, I'm getting those kinds of close range shots. And, and at that range, you know, probably the average shot distance for me is, is probably on the order of 10 yards. And at that range, I can hit anything with the recurve that I could hit with the compound. And, yeah. and it's, and it's more What's the difference? instinctive and, and kind of, and not that I'm an instinctive aimer, but it just, it happens, you know, and with a compound, I've always felt like, oh, I got to pull back. I got to find my peep side. I got to find the pin. I got to hold it. I got to make sure I squeeze the, that's all, really, a lot really, of thinking there that I just don't want to have to deal with. So yeah, that's really interesting because I think the universal belief would be the compound's the easier way to go. And you're saying that's too complicated. And, For and I, me, say, I would think shooting a recurve, yeah, there's less bells and whistles and stuff, but that would that's way harder. Yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting thing. But you're if I was taking the same shots that you might take with your your uh, compound, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I'm not taking 30, 35, 40 yard shots. But you know? when they're in your twenty yard wheelhouse, that's that is your. Yeah, even 20, I'm I'm thinking, oh, should I take that shot? Closer. If it's perfect, I'll take it. How far was your shot last night? Um, Probably eight. Eight yards? Yeah. Were you on the ground or in a tree? I was in a tree. You were? Yep. Um, and you shot a hind, which is yep. a, uh, a doe or a female. Mm-hmm. It's not a doe, it's a, it's a hind. Yep. Well, I call them does sometimes. I, I, I use the terms interchangeably. Universally, yeah. Um. And you didn't think you made a great shot, so you left the deer overnight. You backed out, left the deer overnight. Turns out you did make a pretty good shot, and it was right where you I, thought it was. Yeah, I got lucky. Uh, I know I made a bad shot. <laughs> it was back, it and I... I look at that carcass hanging in the garage, and it if you were to point at a deer's rib cage and be like, that's a good shot, yeah. maybe I'd yep. scoot it two inches further, but I'd still say that that was a pretty dang good shot. I knew the second I hit that thing that it was too far back. Mm. Um, I I tried to get them tight to the front shoulders, and uh, and so I got that sinking feeling. Uh, but it ran off into this thick, thick cover and didn't go far. Called Fragmites. Fragmites, yep. Uh, common reed. A com- uh, which is like ten feet tall. Oh yeah, it's a it's a prison of of tall grass. It looks like. A combination of like Kentucky bluegrass and wheat, like thick, thick right. wheat, and it's just uh, it's so thick. You, if you're in the middle of it, you probably can't see two feet in front of you. Oh yeah, it's it's a typically a, a monotypic stand of vegetation. This happened to be in, interspersed with with some big pine trees, a lot of young pine growth, and some 
myrtle trees. And so I knew that if I tried to go track this deer and I bumped it, uh, yeah, I'd never find it. It's like, you got to step on a deer to find it in there. So I did the best I could to sort of get an angle. I, I actually <laughs> used my phone compass to shoot a bearing, mm-hmm. uh, where I last heard it. And then, uh, got down, checked the arrow, confirmed there was gut content on there. And I was like, I, I'm pulling out of here. So yeah. I just went home, tippy-toed out of there, tried to make as little noise as possible. And, and, uh, went yeah, back this morning. I talked to you last night. You were not feeling good about it. No, I was convinced I was not going to find that deer. It's the worst feeling. So I got back there this morning. I waited for the sun to come up and I didn't even hunt this morning. I didn't even take my bow in. I just, uh, oh, you're, you were allowed to though. So could, it's Sunday. Have. Yeah, on private land you can hunt. Here. I slept in today. Yeah, a rarity for you, I imagine. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I, I have gone from two months of guiding in Alaska to a quick layover in Minnesota to reorganize gear and team up with my fiance, and twelve hours later fly to Baltimore and drive here. So I've been going, yeah. going, 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 and then once I got here, it was more four a.m. rises to go <laughs> yeah. deer hunting and. The long and short of it was I I cursed the Sunday hunting closure because I don't agree with it unless I agree with it. If the state biologist says it's a management tool to curb harvest, I'll agree with that. But I believe it's actually rooted in old school religious. It's a blue law here. It's and I don't agree with that. If you want to go. To church on Sunday morning, go to church on Sunday morning. If you right. want to go deer hunting on morning Sunday morning, I think you should be able to go deer yeah, hunting on I Sunday agree. morning. Anyways, I'm hunting public here. You hunt primarily private, so you were allowed to hunt this morning, Sunday morning. But I just saw in the regulations you can only hunt till 1030 in the morning. Is that right? Um, some counties, yes. Dorchester doesn't limit you. Okay. Uh, but yeah, that's bizarre. It, it, it varies bizarre. by county in Maryland. I don't know why. Anyways. But. I was, I was very turned off by all of this Sunday closure stuff, and was was uh, didn't believe it was really fair. <laughs> and then, come last night and even yesterday morning, I was like, I'm I'm okay with tomorrow being closed. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I could use a recharge, and I did. I slept till nine thirty this morning. Yeah, it uh... and spent the day checking crab traps with you, and it. It was okay. It was a nice breakup to it. So maybe it's not all bad. Yeah. Church looks different to different people. Right. It's always been outside for me. So that was your first Sika deer. You had just moved here. You're you're introduced to this Japanese deer species. You go out, you get one with your trad bow, and you got the bug pretty bad, didn't you? Yeah, big time. It's, uh, you know, I was an avid deer hunter. Uh, when I grew up, I grew up in upstate New York ch- chasing whitetails, and uh, that was my thing. And then the Sika deer I th- thought was kind of a novelty, and then they've got just so much charisma and character, and the places they hang out are beautiful, and it just became my passion. Uh, it's, I still hunt whitetails, and I still love hunting whitetails, and I'm I'm very grateful that they partition the fall the 
<laughs> the Sika rut in the October and whitetails coming in November, so I can hunt the rut of both species. That's how I feel about elk in Montana. Yeah. Like you get your elk rut, you can go bow hunting, and then, you know, we're fortunate or not fortunate, or however you look at it, to rifle hunt deer in November. Yeah. So you do get kind of these two, opportun- two different right. opportunities. But it's made it, you know, I used to do a ton of whitetail hunting starting in, you know, late September, October time frame. And by the time the rut came around, I hunting mostly public land, I, I kind of had things dialed in. I knew where the deer were. And and uh, and now, uh, probably five or six, eight years into Sika deer hunting, I'm so consumed by them through no, uh, October that when the whitetail rut rolls around i'm i'm going in cold you're going in blind <laughs> you're going in blind to the deer yeah. and see the whitetail season yeah that's funny how the how your interests kind of shift um yeah just looking around your house you're a very accomplished sika deer hunter you have a, a impressive collection of six point stags in here i've gotten lucky uh I'm, I've done probably better as a Sika hunter than I have as a whitetail hunter. I've, oh, is that right? I've, yeah, I've still never killed a really big wall hanger type. Not that I get. I uh, I'm in the same boat, man. Yeah. I've got some like, I've got some like 120 to 130 deer, which yeah. are good looking whitetails. Yeah. And at my biggest whitetail to date, I shot last winter on a call hunt in Texas. Yeah, it was a call buck <laughs> to the landowners <laughs> and the biggest deer, of, the biggest white tail of my life to me. But I think that deer is like a hundred and forty inch eight point. Oh four wow! Four by four. Yeah, that would be a monster for me. Oh, it's a monster for me. Yeah, it's hang. It's in our living room, front and center. Yeah, on a skull hooker. Like it's yeah. The, it's uh, I'm very proud of that deer. Anyways, I still haven't you know white tail get much bigger than that, but. Still haven't knocked over a giant, giant yeah. whitetail yet. If I've killed one that's 120, I'd be surprised if it was that big. Yeah. Taking a couple mature bucks, but just not, you know, ones. Uh, my dream would be like a nice 10-pointer, you mm. know, a real 5x5. Five five. Real and pretty. I, I, I killed one a few years ago. Uh, that one side was perfect, and the other side was just a big fork. Mm. It must have had some injury and. That deer is blind on one side. That's probably why I was able to get it because it couldn't see me. <laughs> Literally, poor guy. The blind side was towards me. I missed him the first time I shot at him. He had and, an uh, injured pedi- pedestal. Is it pedestal or pedicle? Pedicle, I think, is how they say it. Pedicle. Yeah. And if and I don't, he had a limp on yeah. one leg, and and uh, I think because that one antler was screwy, maybe got probably hit by fighting. A car. He might have. <laughs> I suspect another deer probably poked his eye out because sure. he didn't have a good time. set of antlers to protect himself. But, uh, but yeah, that's probably my most mature buck. It was a, a pretty heavy racked. Uh, I love whitetail hunting, too, and that is my roots of growing up in Ohio, getting into hunting as a young teenager. Whitetail and turkey was my whole world. Yep. And then I migrated to montana as an 18 year old and just put everything i had into elk hunting it was the reason i moved to montana it was the only reason i applied to montana state university i wanted to go somewhere where i could get become a resident and get an over-the-counter elk tag every year so i applied to fort lewis in southern colorado where my brother was at Mm -hmm. and i applied to montana state 
because Montana State had mailed me a poster in some uh, soliciting high school kids to come to their school campaign. And it was a picture of a kid skiing in Bridger Bowl, sending it off of a cliff. Mm -hmm. And it was like Montana State University. I was like, this is so cool. <laughs> and I know I can get an elk tag here too. So that's what took me to yeah. to Montana as a young guy. Um, and these little Sika deer have a lot in common with the same elk I hunt at yeah. my now home Montana. I would, I'm dying to get an elk under my belt. I've been a couple a times. A Rocky Mountain elk. A yeah. North American elk. Yeah. yeah. I've not, uh, not been successful yet. but uh, Where have you hunted them? couple times in utah colorado um had some neat close. experiences but uh yeah i had a neat experience in colorado after a very long and frustrating hunt my you know hunting these sika deer in the in the rut is like so much fun and that's what i really wanted to do uh with elk and the first couple trips i took were to utah and their archery season is a little early so they're not really getting cranked up by the time the season closes and turns to muzzleloader. And and so I thought, oh, Colorado's got a archery season late uh, second half of September. That'll be perfect. And I had a, my hunting buddy, uh, best friend Matt, is uh, was at the time working for BLM in Silt, Colorado. So he invited me out, and we took, oh, I don't know, it was 11 days, I think. And uh, it started the last day we were driving in on the last day of the early muzzleloader season and uh that really buggered the elk up uh they had all left the hunting public pressure wings. yeah the hunting pressure had just pushed all the elk off onto private lands and so we found a lot of week old sign ghost town yeah <laughs> didn't see our first elk until uh the ninth day of our hunt uh we had relocated and and finally got into some I use a term called no no data is good data. And yeah. That's from doing some sheep and goat census counts in Montana with some biologist friends. And they say, you know, we're looking for these animals in certain areas. And sometimes as a volunteer, if you go into an area and you don't find anything, you're like, shit, I'm not contributing anything to this study. And the biologist is quick to say, no, that's part of the picture. Right. No data is still good data. No data. Like what you're doing is still great valuable. for a biologist sucks if you're a hunter though. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. You were on the losing end of that. Yeah. So, well, what was the cool encounter? At well, the so we relocated down to, uh, south of where were we? Carbondale. We were somewhere near, I think it's called Carbondale. Hey, you don't have to give us your hunting spots. No, it's not my hunting spot. I've been there one time. <laughs> but I try not to spot burn. Um, That's a and, good term. And so we got there, and I was pretty tired at this point. Matt, you know, was living in Colorado. I was coming from here, where the highest uh, elevation is, what, 11 feet above sea level. And so after nine days of chasing elk through the – mountains by the time we got our camp set up i was pretty what were you spent. Out there like eight thousand. i think so yeah um well we got camp set up and matt was eager to do some scouting and he wanted to head up the mountain and i started got about a quarter mile up and then i was like matt <laughs> dude i need to take a day here 
and recharge. Uh, I'll Tap, join you tomorrow. Out. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I just needed to relax. Well, I'll cook ca- dinner. I'll have dinner ready when you get back to camp and blah, blah, blah. And, and then, yeah, it got dark. And then uh, no sign of him. Uh, and it get later and later. And I'm starting to get a little worried. And we didn't have any cell this service. Is pre-in-reach days. <laughs> yep, pre-in-reach. And uh, finally he shows up at, I don't know, 9 or 10 o'clock. And uh, turns out he'd encountered a bull and and gotten a shot off but it wasn't lethal and he was had been tracking it Ah. and so yeah uh we made a plan that that morning we had hunted and and seen some elk uh but got in a little bit too late and didn't want to bugger him up so we just kind of pulled out and thought well we'll go back there the next morning and this i think was our close to our last day of the hunt um and so I told him I'd go help him look in the morning. He said, well, this is your last day. Why don't you continue on with your plan? I'll go look. And if I don't find it by, you know, 10 o'clock or so, I'll see if I can get you a text and you can come up and join me. So that was what we did. Nice I went guy. off on my own to to try to get into the elk I'd seen the day before. And I got into him and was hearing a bunch of elk and cow calling and trying to sneak through the gambrel's oak and, and uh, kept hearing some bugling and, and then the, as I'm stalking through, I kind of look over and I see this guy with a recurve. A human. Yes. And I'm like, oh, shit. It, was I just like talking with this other hunter this oh, that, whole that time? Ha- that happens, man. <laughs> so I didn't know. And, and I was going to, I didn't know if he saw me. And I was just going to like ease out of there and not mess up his hunt. And But then I could tell he saw me. And <laughs> brother of the bow, you know, he's shooting a recurve. I thought, well, I'll just go chat with him for a minute so i started talking to him super nice guy uh ray was his name um and i told him i was complete novice at this i had no idea what i was doing and and you know was there a bull in here this morning or was i hearing you and he, he said oh there was a bull earlier um i said would you mind blowing your call just to, so i know what it sounds like and can kind of put that in the memory bank and he said yeah sure we'll mess with this guy down the hill apparently there was another hunter that was down a few levels it's a busy Uh, place yeah apparently and uh so he rips off a bugle and it sounded amazing uh i couldn't tell if that was him i heard all morning or if i was listening to another bull and as soon as he called this guy down the hill started cow calling mewing like crazy so apparently it sounded good enough to him too sold yeah, yeah. sold it but uh like within seconds another a real bull answers us and i was like oh my god this is amazing and he asked if we wanted to go after it he said i'll call for you i was like well no i don't want to hone in on your hunt man you were here first and that, that's fine he said, no, this isn't the one I'm after. I'd be happy to call him in for you. So I was like, awesome. Okay. <laughs> that sounds great. So we hoofed it up towards where this bull was coming from, and, and he started – he got me set up, and he backed off a little bit, and and uh, we were maybe 30 or 40 yards apart with me between him and the bull, and, and he starts calling, and the bull starts – he's getting cranked up, and he's chuckling, and he's bugling, and, and – pretty soon i'm hearing branches breaking and he's get closer and closer 
And every time it called, the guy down the hill would start blowing on his <laughs> damn cow call like it was a kazoo. I mean, just all kinds of noise, continuous stream of noise coming from this guy. And it, it uh, every time he did it, the bull would stop and look down the hill and get kind of nervous. What the heck is going The on? guy that was calling for me, this guy, Ray, really knew what he was doing. Kept it really subtle, uh, just quiet muse, just to keep its attention, break a little stick, thump the ground, stuff like that. And he had that bull come in a couple times, and then the other guy down would, would kind of overdo it, and then the bull would get nervous and start to wander off, and then Ray would call again, and it would start coming back in. He got it to within 30 yards of me, but, you know, I needed it within 20. And uh, But you saw the bull a couple times. Oh, my God. I had a front row the, seat, you know, and the, the sun was coming up behind yeah. him, and it was beams of sunlight coming through the woods, backlit, and I could see the steam coming out of his oh, nostril man. and s- saliva dripping, <laughs> piss spraying when he was oh, chuckling. Yeah. It was like... I don't know that I could have made a shot if he'd come close enough because I was <laughs> – You were unglued. Yeah, totally. You're like, that's uh, way bigger than a Sika deer. <laughs> yeah, and it's like that That sound is – you hear it on a video or Oh, whatnot. it'll never do it justice. No, until it's like thunder. The, until it, you're in the woods you and you hear that it, reverberation. And, you feel it in your bones. Yeah. Like you feel it in your chest cavity. Yeah, when it was amazing. Close, yeah, it is uh, alarming. I uh, – and so what an education to hear two different calling styles and be able to watch this animal react to it. And that has forever influenced how I call when I'm trying to work an animal. You know what's funny about the calling uh, with elk and hunting on public land, the endless dilemma of that was a guy, that was an elk, mm-hmm. that was a guy, that was an elk. And it's – I've been wrong before. I've certainly yeah. been on a point – listening to bulls bugle and I hear something and I'm like, that's definitely another hunter. And then lo and behold, right from that spot, some gnarly elk comes out. I'm yeah. like, well, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out elk make shitty noises just like I do with elk calls right. uh, from time to time. But it is, it's this endless uh It's not so much the yourself. quality of the sound, like the mimicry of what you envision as the perfect Seco bugle or the perfect elk bugle, but it's the the cadence, the yes. the the conversation that you're having. And when that Seco stag bugled last night, there wasn't a doubt in my mind that it was another hunter. Not that was one thousand yeah. percent a live Seco stag in the marsh across the river, and it rattled me you yeah couldn't, you couldn't i couldn't uh emulate that if you gave me a million dollars there and there's there's a lot of calls that that don't uh the secret call is hard to mimic uh there the are only a few calls that garage, really that you got a good one yeah that call in particular i think works well there's a couple others that are open read calls there's one that's really uh popular around here it's manufactured by a guy here but it's basically a coyote howler and that so it's just got to me it's got this sort of thin tinny sort of sound and i can pick out a a call made on that call and you hear it all the time because guys get oh i'm gonna get my secret seducer and i'm gonna go and (laughs) call me in a stag and and so they get 
it gets overused. Heard it a thousand times. Oh man, yeah, and you just hear it coming from all up and down, <laughs> and every place you do, you can see if it's during the muzzleloader season, you'll see an orange blob up in the tree, and and so, but the call that I've been using uh, is made out of a company out of Sweden, uh, Nordic Game Calls, and uh, that thing to me, it's it Are there really Sika catches in Sweden. It. Um, you know, there are Sika throughout Europe. I'm not sure if they're actually in Sweden or not, but, but they are pretty widely distributed. Uh, and so this he's manufacturer is not that far off. No, from, but he's got a, a whole line of, uh, predator calls and he, okay. he cranks out uh, white tail grunters and, and that sort of thing. So, um, so this call, it just, it captures that sort of gravelly raspy sort of low town tones that the sea could do when they start their bugle and when they trail off yeah because uh, you're I'm, i am quick to uh, summarize the sika bugle into just that high pitch the singular high pitch but that's just the middle of it right it's the majority of it but it's just the middle of it there is a growly build to it and a, a growly finish to it. Well, and if you hear it from a distance, really all you hear, you miss those low tones. Sure. And all you hear is a little whistly kind of sound sure. uh, if it's far enough away. But if you get close, it's kind of like that elk. You you feel it. And that that's that bass tone that I think is carrying it. And, and uh, yeah. Oh, God, it's real. Yeah. It's yeah. really neat. Well, with a little bit of luck, uh, all in count. I got three more days of hunting. So six more sits. Well, and it's weekdays too, so there'll be presumably a little less you know, pressure out there. And... I don't think my lack of success so far has been due to hunting pressure. I think it's just I'm just new kid on the block learning, and uh, you're seeing deer, so you're being yes, successful. Um, I agree with that. There are a lot of people that Waller come... and I have have said that after each sit, we're like, "Hey, we saw them. Like that's yeah. we're doing something right." Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of people that. In fact, it kind of amuses me sometimes. I'll see, I've been hunting Seeker for, for you know, twelve years, and I got my first stag this year. And, yeah, and what's uh, wrong with you? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> they're not that <laughs> mysterious. <laughs> yeah, you just need to put your time in and and figure them out. Do you know the estimated population of Seeker deer? I think the DNR estimates the Dorchester population somewhere around ten thousand head, somewhere in that okay. ballpark, and they they figure they harvest about a third of it each year. That sounds like heavy harvest. I mean, I don't think we kill a third of the elk in Montana every year. And maybe Yeah, I don't know. Um, and what's also interesting to me, it sounds like they're sustaining large harvest, but what's also more interesting to me is that they've never supplemented or augmented this population with new blood. Mm -mm. And perhaps these 10,000 deer all derived from... Less Probably than a dozen a, or so. Yeah. yeah, a dozen or less maybe. Yeah. Which I would think that would cause very abnormal inbreeding and genetic issues, and it, it doesn't. Yeah, you know. If you had a dozen people, human beings, and right. they turned into 10,000, you'd have a big problem. Yeah, and there's a lot of species that will, but there's – and it's something maybe with these – maybe there's just a lot of genetic heterogeneity in the founding population that saves them from that or saying, they're just so perfectly suited that that for some reason that they don't uh get those kind of 
deleterious mutations that that wind up counting against them. You're saying there's a good chance that uh, the original dozen or whatever it was weren't a family group. It's a it's a yeah. I don't know. I don't really know. That would make sense though. But you know, nutria were the same deal. There's a very small founding population of nutria here, and they they grew to tens of thousands let's Um, let's switch gears to nutria um what is a nutria nutria is a uh rodent a semi-aquatic rodent native to south america uh looks kind of like a cross between a muskrat and a beaver yeah Uh, they have a a long sort of round tail uh big ones get up to maybe 20 pounds uh, a little over 20 pounds but usually that you know the biggest ones were pregnant females, so you know they same with beavers. Litter. Like the big, I feel like the big, big beavers we trap are giant females. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a semi-aquatic rodent from South America. Why? Yeah. How did it end up here? So in the early 1900s, they were uh, really promoted as a farmable fur bearer. Mm-hmm. Um, and even as a weed control agent. Uh, and so they were, they were imported um, and sold throughout the, the country. I think the history has it that the, uh, is it the McElhenney family in Louisiana, the Tabasco folks. Oh, um, love it. Yeah, I recognize yeah. the name now that you say that. It's right yeah, there on so the jar. Th- they had imported a, a bunch of... Uh, nutria and then i think that they were also providing nutria to other uh entrepreneurial folks that wanted to get things started fur farming yeah and so there were several fur farms established in dorchester county and for one reason or another they never really took off and so the efforts were abandoned um and the nutria either released released or escaped their their holding facilities and established uh, free ranging populations uh, surrounding Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge, which is sort of so like ground zero. Yeah. For the nutria. Yeah. And One of the big deer. farms was like right on the edge of, of uh, Blackwater. And nutria did exist, do have existed uh, all up and down the East coast of the United States. I know they have them in Texas. I was uh, hunting in Texas on the mm-hmm. East coast two years ago and saw nutria. Waller was telling me that there's nutria in Virginia, just to our South. Yep. Uh, so they, they took off. They took off. Uh, they're very uh, prolific species. They can breed. Uh, they breed as soon as they give birth. So, and they've got about a three month gestation period. So a female can it's crank like a rabbit like, or something. Yeah. Almost four litters a year, possible. Or a pig. Um, what what other animals reproduce that fast? That's yeah, what I would think of. Yeah, that's pretty. I think uh, pigs probably have bigger litter sizes, but uh, but yeah, there's a very prolific animal. Um, why are they Why are they a problem? Why are they not welcome here? So they feed on the roots and tubers of the plants that grow in these marshes, and these marshes are basically a floating mat of vegetation that's riding on top of this organic muck in, in you know, tidal zones in the tidal uh tidal marshes and so they're digging up the roots 
Uh, they're digging swim channels through the marsh surface uh, so that they can get from point A to point B. And that those channels allow the tide to sort of flush in and out of the the marsh more quickly. And in doing so, it, it kind of erodes the uh, organic material underneath that the, the root mat is kind of holding in place. And so over time, what you see is the, the marsh begins to sink. So the 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 first you, you get an area that's they call eaten out, uh, where they're actually digging up the plants and killing and consuming them. And then the surrounding areas, as it starts to slough away and, and erode, begins to sort of sink. And these plants are very susceptible to minor changes in, in water level, uh, even though they're all wetland plants. The vegetative community, as you go from, you know, open water basically to upland habitats, it's a matter of inches and fractions of an inch that define which species of plants live there. And That's so, interesting. Yeah. You'd think... It's fascinating. As long as you're in water, it'd be okay with you saying yeah. that they're pretty temperamental. Yeah, and then there's different soils too. So some of the marshes are more uh, mineral-based, clay-based type soils, which are less vulnerable to erosion. But the more brackish and freshwater marshes, as you get further up uh, and further away from uh, the bay itself, are much more vulnerable. Uh, it's, you know, eons of, of peat moss, basically, that's, you know, accumulated dead vegetation that's built up over over eons uh and that marsh is just sort of holding it in place yeah and it's, so that's what they do so uh, these nutrients come in and they kind of carve it up with their travel routes yep they're they're feeding on stuff but maybe more detrimental is these area where they've invited more tidal water in which increases exactly. erosion and so you're losing marsh habitat yep Couple that with sea level rise, and it's kind of a triple whammy, quadruple whammy. There's a lot of different factors that influence these, the health of these marshes. What? So when did the nutria show up? Uh, early 1940s is when they were introduced. That not long ago. No, not that long ago. By the 1970s, they'd really established some significant populations. But through the 40s, 50s, 60s, typical of many uh, invasive introductions, they tend to exist at pretty low numbers uh, until they sort of meet, reach a critical mass, and then you see explosive population growth. Okay. Um, exponential. It just uh, – so, you know, for for years, they just kind of – They were just around. Yeah. And went in the 70s, it was like, holy shit, I we think, have a problem. Yeah, exactly. And they uh, – You have a population estimate in the 70s, Oh, 80s? God. Yeah. Even uh, count it's been a, been a while since I've delivered these presentations, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I think Blackwater estimated at one point they probably had 50,000 nutria there. Oh, wow. So they've done some density uh, studies back in the day, and, and uh, they can reach quite high densities. But it's – Classic sort of, um, oh, our uh, species, life history strategy of, of uh, this type of critter is they are well adapted to live in really ephemeral environments. So what they, does ephemeral mean? Uh, rapidly changing. Mm, I should have um, probably known that one. Can't spell it. Don't know what it means. <laughs> don't ask me to spell it. It's. I think it's with a pH. So they were very adaptable. Yeah, and so they they have a lot of babies. Uh, they can reproduce really quickly. And sounds like wild, like feral hog, like the hog problem across America. 
Yeah, but they're also very susceptible. Uh, here in Maryland, they're really at the northern limit of what they can tolerate as far as, as winter weather. Uh, and so they can they can reproduce quickly after uh, an environmental calamity. I think in their native lands, probably drought would knock them back pretty seriously, but the few that survive can quickly repopulate when mm. the conditions are suitable. And so here, it was really, I think, our winners that that uh, drove that population. Um, and there are a few in the late 1970s. Uh, you still hear stories of how the bay froze over, and, mm. and they thought that they had eliminated nutria that they had just died off uh not so fast but not so fast and through the 1980s by the mid 80s they had come back with a vengeance and uh, blackwater estimates that they lost about half uh about 5,000 acres of of emergent marshlands that converted to open water yeah it's just, just disappeared it's just water now yep and so what was your role and profession in this big picture of the nutria yeah so i i work for an agency that does wildlife damage management um the government trapper uh yeah more or less uh we it's like my hired a lot job. yeah it uh it's been a, a neat career for sure um it's it's been an opportunity to combine my passion for you know hunting and and trapping and that sort of thing with you know reaching sort of wildlife management conservation goals um so it's been a, a a great very interesting and rewarding career that's provided me a lot of opportunities to travel Would you and, call yourself a, a wildlife biologist well, yeah yeah you're yep. a wildlife biologist yep and your your projects your federal pro and you work for the federal fish and wildlife no, I work for the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Wildlife Services Program. Okay. So you are a and government trapper. Yeah, no, I don't trap so much anymore. <laughs> and in this role, I would hesitate to call myself a trapper because I was the project uh, leader and I supervised a lot of trappers. And if they heard me call myself a trapper. Okay, we'll backpedal on that. Uh, they have something to say about it. But, yeah, I've, you know, I've trapped for, for research. I've trapped for fur. Uh, and having that sort of base knowledge. You ever uh, eat a nutria? Yeah. You have? Yeah. yeah, we've we tried a few. Of, you know, it's kind of, this was a year-round effort. And trapping through the summertime, you're pulling a trap, an animal out of a trap, a nutria out of a trap that's been sitting in the sun for. Yeah, that's a good Yeah, it kind of takes away your appetite for consumption. So tell me about your your project or why, what was the goal or the the summary of your work well so back in the before i got involved back in the late mid to late 1990s they'd done some research at blackwater looking at uh, excluding nutria from certain areas and monitoring the vegetation response let me ask you this real quick uh, are muskrat and beaver native here muskrat are native and abundant here um, beaver have only recently sort of come into this area. You okay, know, so beaver are more of a freshwater, and this is kind of a brackish yeah, saltwater. So this is historic muskrat habitat. Mm -hmm. Do the nutria run the muskrat out of house and home? To a degree, they they do or can uh, in kind of two different ways. One is they destroy the habitat the muskrat 
need. So when Marsh disappears, you've got nothing to support muskrat. Um, but the other interesting component relates to their behavior. And, you know, muskrat are a native species. They've evolved with this marsh, and they don't have the kinds of negative impacts that, that Nutri do because although they feed on the same plants and in, the, in many cases the same manner, they're digging up the roots and tubers, when they traverse across the marsh, they're going beneath the, the surface. They're digging tunnels. So that's really what it boiled down to was the nutria. Those their channels. Travel, their channels were mm-hmm. destroying this uh, yep. fragile marsh habitat. Yep. So the, the muskrat are kind of diving underneath to get into their huts and whatnot. And so muskrat survived these winters by building these large mounds of vegetation, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think roots. I walked on one last you, night. You might have, probably. Right next to where we parked our boat. Anyways, go ahead, sorry. Well, and so the nutria don't do that. They don't create their own sort of shelter, like a you know a beaver makes a lodge or a bank den, and the muskrat either bank dens or these, these uh, huts. The nutria are just kind of vulnerable to winter weather, and so... One of the warmest and nicest spots that you can find in the winter here in the marsh is a nice sun-exposed muskrat house. Okay. <laughs> and so the nutria would climb up on top of them and, and sometimes burrow into them and kind of ruin them for the muskrats. Uh, they're way and bigger. So, oh, yeah, they're three, four times the size right. of a muskrat. So uh, kind of a double... Uh, double impact you know habitat destruction and then you know kind of ruining their their homes so mm-hmm. to speak so they're definitely uh and muskrat are a huge part of the culture here um how so uh people the richest people in dorchester county were landowners that own marsh and trap muskrats back in the day love that yeah i mean it's it was uh during the fur booms 20 dollars again yeah. You'd be lucky to get a dollar for a muskrat today. If right. muskrat were 20 bucks again, I'd, I would yep. do nothing but muskrat trap. And people still trap muskrat here, uh, and they eat them too. They're they're a local delicacy. Um, I'm going to try one. I'm going to try a beaver too. I've never ha- tried yeah. either, but I've trapped them, and every time I dispose of a carcass, I feel like, I'm like this looks... Not a lot of protein yeah, there. Yeah, it be pretty edible. So there's history and value in the native muskrat. And these nutria are not only destroying habitat, they're detrimental to this very coveted, valuable native uh, muskrat. So back in the late 1990s, they did a bunch of studies that showed pretty conclusively that that the nutria were kind of the leading culprit in marsh loss. And that if you could exclude them from an area, that uh, the marsh could actually recover. And so that gave them the confidence that, well, if we can exclude them, we can't build a fence around the whole thing, but maybe we can trap them out and and get rid of them. And so uh, about 2000, they got some, the Congress uh, got funding and and appropriated, authorized uh, funds to start a pilot project to look at the feasibility of eradicating nutria from the Delmarva Peninsula, uh, really, is because the population has spread far beyond Blackwater's boundaries. And that's and, where you uh, came into the picture. Yeah, in 2002 they switched from that sort of research-based pilot project to an operational eradication campaign. And 
I was very fortunate to get hired to sort of be the project leader for that. Um, and yeah, it was great. I uh, supervised a crew of about up to 15 wildlife specialists uh, that were primarily trapping and hunting systematically. Nutria. Yep. Did you poison them at all? Nope. We didn't probably, use any toxicants. Right, couldn't. It would be. It's too. It would spread too far. Yeah, Seems and, like, and you know, probably like a lot when, of when they wanted to get rid of the wolf. Back in the day, they yeah. just poisoned them, and they got rid of the wolf they, and everything else along. And with everything, it. all the eagles and everything yeah, else along exactly. the way. And so it would be really hard to use a toxicant for nutria that wouldn't also affect muskrats. muskrats. And then you've got to worry about the secondary poisoning of whatever feeds on the carcasses That's that are right. left. So we relied on some pretty Locals traditional <laughs> eating these muskrats. Yeah. So, you know, toxicants were never considered as a viable uh, alternative. Or if they were, they were discarded as an option very early in the process. So, hunting and trapping. Yep. And what, so hunting, you you guys would go, teams would go out and use 22 and shoot. Yeah, mostly in the wintertime that was most effective because the marsh would freeze and you could really cover some ground. The nutria are kind of stuck on top. And if you got a skim of snow on a frozen marsh, uh you could really remove a lot of nutria pretty quickly. We also uh, used hunting dogs uh, that would help us to... What kind of dog? Uh, mostly uh, Labrador retrievers, really? a few Chesapeake Bay retrievers. Oh, we're going to talk about those. In a yeah. Um, so, yeah, kind of quintessential marsh dogs, you know, um, dogs that are comfortable in, the, in and around the water. And, uh, and you, they would go chase them down and kill them. Uh, Ideally, they would just hold them. Uh, we had a couple dogs that were maybe a little more aggressive and yeah, would actually like go that. in on them. But mostly, they what our preference was is that they'd sort of chase them, and then the nutri would hole up in a thick piece of cover, some some thick needle rush. And you guys would come something. in and dispatch it. Yeah. And then, would you take it with you? Typically, no. On the landscape uh, as organic we, mass. When we started. The project that was the goal we were concerned about uh rotting carcasses you know being coming a source for avian botulism and, and that sort of thing avian bot what does that mean uh it's a a disease that uh is like bird gout um it's no it's uh it's a bacterial driven uh process you know botulism eating it, too much rodent um uh, neither here nor there. You were worried about environmental impact and right. leaving them out there. Right. But we quickly discovered that uh, the carcasses would get consumed very quickly, you know, between the eagles and the crabs and the everything else. Uh, they didn't sit around long enough to harbor, you know, bacteria and, okay. and become that kind of point source for diseases that might get into waterfowl or other, other uh critters so and we discovered that w we could be a whole lot more effective using all that energy to bring more traps in than to bring dead carcasses out of the marsh tell um, me about the trapping efforts where did you have colony traps foot foot bear traps what conibers? we used uh we used uh a lot of conibear traps the 220 size conibear is, is pretty much perfectly suited for nutria and pine martin um yeah. That's um, how I'm familiar with them. Yep. Uh, I think they use a lot of 160s for, for Pine Martin. Uh, 
but the uh, the 220, you know, anything kind of raccoon sized, and I, I think that would be for those that have never seen a nutria, probably a raccoon would be the closest comparative body wise. Yeah, that, raccoon sounds big in compare. Maybe maybe I'm over amplifying a raccoon in my mind. They probably are similar. Yeah, um, you're. Your huge coons would be bigger than a nutria, but yeah, you know, you think about that sort of mailbox-sized critter. That seems like a uh, a tough way to eradicate them one by one like that. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, doubt as to whether or not it could be done, um, and frankly, that's what it was. A uh, it was that's why they called it a pilot project. We weren't sure it was going to be feasible. We did have some indication though that it, it might be possible because they had uh nutrient become established in england and they successfully eradicated them there a little bit different environment than what we had here but uh they used cage traps uh to remove and eradicate like a, nutri- col- a colony trap no uh yeah, like i have a heart uh, yeah one at a time wow. kind of Walk in, Door get caught, behind you. go check the trap, remove the nutria, reset it, catch another one. And so, yeah, that uh, they succeeded in, in England uh, through a very systematic approach. And so we actually consulted with, uh, uh, before I got involved, they consulted with biologists that sort of ran that campaign. And uh, he came and, and kind of looked things over, and he, he thought that it could be possible. And so we... Uh, we just took a very systematic approach. You know, we gridded the marsh off into basically a big checkerboard pattern and then assigned a trapper to each row of, of cells and we systematically trapped them out. How big How big was your product? How many people are working on with you or under you? Like, uh, what, we had what did this look like? As many as, I think, 15 trappers at one time. Is we there we call them wildlife season? specialists. Wildlife but, uh, is there a peak season when you would try more intensely than another time or is no, this year, year round? round we're doing this nonstop. it was year round yeah very um, systematic yep and so kind of moving across the landscape in a big row uh, and then so you've got several phases in an eradication campaign so you've got your first your initial knockdown phase where you're we, trying to reduce that population as close to zero as you can but knowing that you've got you know a uh, continuing populations in front of you, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to try to catch the last one here when you know just over there you've got more animals that are likely moving back like, in. Let's take off this top so, tier and yeah. then come back with a fine comb. Exactly. Uh, so that we call a mop-up phase. Uh, lethal. Um, how long did this project last? Oh, God. Well, depends what... <sighs> Where you when where you draw the line? You you said uh, the region and your agency celebrated a point Just, where you said we did it. Yep, two weeks mission ago. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. Nutrient yep. free. When was it? Just two weeks ago. It just um, happened. Yeah, and so we eventually discovered nutrient ab- about. Uh, gosh, now I got to think. It's been a little bit, I left that project about eight years ago, so I'm getting a little rusty with some of my facts. But I think there were nine watersheds that we found Nutria in and removed them. We caught the last ones in May of 2015, about 
six, eight months after I left the project for a, a different position. Um, and those were I hope you still got props for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were very kind and recognizing. Yeah, I my saw contributions I saw plaques. There. I saw uh, celebratory plaques in your house. And yeah, and say, yeah, it was. Thank uh, you for saving Blackwater, Steve. <laughs> it was a great opportunity. Uh, so what I happened between very, 2015 and, and 2022? There were still spent, some lingering. Well, it's so the confirmation that you've achieved your goal is takes probably more work than the actual reduction of the population to yeah, begin like you with. You got right? rid of them, prove it. Exactly. Yeah. Like how many people still think there's a Bigfoot out there, even though no one's ever found one? Well, you can't prove a negative, right? Right. So um, what's that saying? The uh, The absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, right? Sure. And so you've got to look and look and look uh, in order to – be confident that not finding nutria means it's because they're not there and not just that you didn't happen to find them on the day you went through. So we had developed a team of detector dogs, uh, new methods for detecting nutria. We used uh, hair snares. We used remote triggered cameras, detector dogs, and then just good old fashioned scouring the earth yeah. looking for them. And, uh, you know, it took about seven years to, to build up our comfort level that, you know, it's been, they're, they're gone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's, of course, I fully expect sometime with all the, the, with the media attention that maybe resulted from the declaration of eradication is that yeah, you get, someone will come out of the woodwork and say, yeah, nah, ah, here's yeah, one over here. A lot of invest because but, they uh, still exist to the south of here. Yeah. Do you have them to um, the north? No. Uh, Maryland was north about the northest distribution. And so the the theory here is that uh, eradication was achievable because we're basically an island. You know, the Delmarva Peninsula yeah, is, is cut off from other nutria populations. So uh, that was what gave us some hope that eradication could be achieved. You is had that, a controlled, a controlled yeah, uh, immigration habitat, yeah. Uh, is, is near zero unless someone brings them in. So. Right. It just became a, a function of finding them everywhere they existed so and then removing them. It, you stopped killing them and documenting them and uh, eradicating them in 2015, and seven years have gone by where they have not shown up again, and you just right. have kind of had the confidence to say they're gone. Yeah, and we put a lot of uh, – statistics went into that assessment too you know we were uh working That's gotta with some be frustrating pretty... to know in your heart you're like they're gone but yeah. now i just gotta prove it to everybody exactly. that they're gone right um, well and it's a huge investment of money too and you don't want to sure. pull the plug on it too early until and you're then, done yeah and then have it uh all that be for nothing so you still have signs every boat ramp we put in at all over uh blackwater there's signs yep. of Please report exactly yep. uh, invasive nutria sightings. Yep, and I I hope to not have to make that phone call, but I will. Yeah, please do. We want to know if they're out there. God, I just really burst a lot of bubbles if they showed back up. <laughs> I've well, often I've impressive. had these like did, these. So that that puts you out of a job. I mean, you you finished that pro you, you killed all the nutri you got rid of all of them what are you doing these days well so i just uh i had the opportunity to 
to take a job a promotion as they say mm. uh, at our headquarters uh and so you know i've never been the kind of person that like likes to do anything for too long uh, before i start getting a little uh bored with it and sure fortunately the nutrient project had so many different facets to it that i was able to keep it interesting throughout the entire time i was there but you know uh it, it came to a point where it was it was time to let someone else take the reins and and yeah uh i had an opportunity to advance in my career i took it um it uh you know i i work at our agency's headquarters now and deal mostly with administrative and policy type stuff um not field work and so it uh definitely has its drawbacks i much prefer yeah every biologist i know that advances into the administrative side of thing misses their field oh god yeah don't get me started (laughs) (laughs) we'll have another conversation about that offline um well that's fascinating i i thank you for your nutria work and saving the blackwater wildlife refuge in the surrounding areas from uh, a south american aquatic rat and providing yeah. this awesome ecosystem that I'm here to hunt today. Yeah, it was very rewarding to because uh, we could actually see the impact as we removed nutria. The marsh would start to heal itself, and so it was very rewarding. When you say heal itself, what tell what does that mean? So all of these uh, swim channels, the nutria dug, uh, they had to work to keep those open. Uh, and as soon as we depressed the population, you'd see the roots of those plants start to kind of reclaim and knit back together, and that would trap the eroding Water stuff in the soil. And, yeah. Yep. And so, you know, if you got it in time, you could you could preserve what was left. Um, so that was rewarding. But you know, it led to some interesting opportunities because what we were doing, there were a lot of eyes on it uh, around the world. We had folks from uh south korea china israel all come to see what we were doing here and we got invited to go places uh and one of those which one of the most interesting trips that i had the opportunity to go on was in south america where native north american beaver had been introduced no way so it was like this trading places sort of thing and in tierra del fuego where Beaver had been introduced what by the Argentinian, Argentina? Argentina and Chile, uh, both uh, it's split between the two countries. The Argentinian military, around the same time that Nutria were brought to the U.S., they introduced uh, beaver. Yeah, I gotta just. Can you picture like some Argentinian military guy with a beaver in a bag, like taking it home with it? Like, what does that look like? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how it all took place, but they did it. And those beaver just devastated uh, that area. Now they're fighting back? Well, they're trying. I'm not sure where they're at. You know, it's a binational problem, and uh, a lot of political turnover. Uh, In fact, when we were there, we were told very distinctly not to go certain places because uh, parts of Argentina are littered with landmines. Uh, oh so gosh. there was conflict there that really uh, over the years, I think has, has uh, prevented the sort of binational approach that was necessary. Not to do as something solvable about it. of a solution. And yeah. maybe, would you say your project and your research 
got so much attention because it was so uh, contained here on the peninsula? Like it was partly it, it that, seems... and partly it was a, a really uh, what was probably the most important was the partnerships that evolved uh, to all marching towards the same goal. So the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the Maryland Department of Natural Resources, the Delaware of uh, Denrec, I can never remember what that all stands for. Virginia uh, Department of Game and Inland Fish. Uh, so all of these groups sort of Is came together a with a unified Friends of the Blackwater or something. Yeah, I think uh, I found their website. Yeah, Friends of Blackwater. Uh, there's a lot of friends groups that pop up in support of the refuge. Uh, system throughout the country and, and they and all the, support everybody kind of teamed up here and was yeah. a common goal yep yeah you all achieved i think it's incredible yeah it was a neat neat experience uh you got a nutria skull in that cabinet over there um yeah i think i do you'd you think i'd really, have more i have uh <laughs> i have a pretty cool skull collection but yours is is better but i had something that you don't you remember what that was um Yes, an armadillo. Yeah. I do not have an armadillo. Well, if I find another one, I'll mail it to All you. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, before we sign off, uh, we're going to touch on just final Chesapeake things. And let's start with the blue crab. We'll just talk about yep. this shortly. Um, the blue crab, is that the primary, the only crab species here? The... Most no, predominant. it's the the only sort of commercially uh, important crab species. But there's, you know, we have fiddler crabs and uh, okay. there's other crabs but as well. When I drive around town and I see stacks of crab pots, uh, those are all commercial blue crabbing efforts. Yep. yep. And it's a big cultural thing here. That's huge. It defines the Chesapeake. Yeah. And forever it has. Have they been? Have they been pulling blue crab out of here forever? Yeah, I think uh, probably at one time oysters were probably even more quintessentially Chesapeake Bay, but uh, those numbers have have uh, dwindled dramatically. But wild Chesapeake... oysters are like farming oysters. Waller was telling me the difference today between. Uh, well, it used like to be wild. Just going and finding. I mean, they them. used to pave roads with oyster shells and uh, on Jeez. the eastern shore. What? Uh, yeah, I mean. It's mind-boggling uh, how the oyster fishery has changed over the generations. They used to fight wars in the Chesapeake. There were people died over protecting oyster grounds. Oh my gosh! Uh, so yeah, it was it was a huge part of the Chesapeake Bay economy, and it's a, a fraction of what it was. And most of the oysters now are produced through aquaculture. Uh, but the blue crab farms. lives here wild. Yep, uh, that's a wild fishery. And we pulled your personal crab trap. You call them a trap? These are crab pots. Landowners are allowed up to two crab pots. Just uh, off your back, off. just off your back lawn. Yep, is the Chesapeake Bay part of the Chesapeake yep, tributary Bay. to the Chesapeake? And we canoed out and pulled your personal crab pots, and. Uh, I got to see my first mature keeper male blue crab, and we're about to cook them up for dinner. We're about to have a you call it a crab boil. No, what do you call uh, it in the Chesapeake Bay region? You don't boil crabs. So that's what it's I was gonna. Steamy. I was about. I was trying to trap you into that. <laughs> that's what I was trying to trap you into because yeah. it's popularly known as a crab boil. 
Yeah, Louisiana, I think they boil crabs. You're not boiling crabs. Here they steam them. So they call it a crab feed here. A crab feed. We're about to feed on crab. Yep. But you're not boiling them. You're, in fact, using, like, uh, you're boiling a couple inches of water and steaming all these crab on top of that, like a veggie Mm -hmm. steamed broccoli or something. You got that veggie catcher thing. I'm assuming we're going to use something close to that. Yeah. So the crabs are not in boiling water. They're getting steamed. Yep. They're in a big basket, a perforated basket that has a standoff that allows the water underneath. And tell me about what makes a legal crab to eat. Um, Well, for those of us who are, you know, kind of non-commercial, they've got to be males. So jimmies, they call them. And uh, there's a size restriction. So... In the early part of the season, uh, they've got to be at least five inches. And then after July, when they're getting bigger and growing along, uh, they've got to be five and a quarter inches from point to point on the shell. Yeah, wide. Yeah, Yeah. and you've got got this stick, this kind of a a plastic ruler thing that we we checked each male crab with. Yep. Um, And what's what's the goal there? You don't kill little ones. There's more more crab later you don't kill the females there's more crab later yeah you're just protecting the the sort of juvenile stock so that there's always some new age classes coming up Uh okay and crab molt yeah so the way they grow uh you know i should know this better but i don't um a couple times throughout the warm months no i think it's more than that yeah but so you know they have an exoskeleton that's rigid, it's like and a so they can only or something. Yeah, they can only get so uh, big before, if they want to get bigger, they need to get rid of that shell and grow a new one. And so what they do is they molt, uh, and a crab that's about to molt is called a peeler, and it real hard shell. Yeah, it's a hard shell. How does and it get out of that? So they, it's amazing. They back out of it. Uh, so it pops, there's a seam on the back that pops open and they just kind of wriggle out of it and all their, their legs and their claws and everything. And when they come out, they're soft as butter, um, soft crabs, they call them. And they're very uh, delicacy. delicacy. Yeah. Yeah. You might be familiar with these, uh, soft, uh, I, the only reason I knew about them was from sushi, sushi restaurants. Right. Uh, Bozeman. Dave Sushi got a, a roll called the spider roll. Yep. And it's a deep fried soft shell crab, mm-hmm. which I guess means freshly molted. Yep. Inside this sushi roll. And it's amazing. All right. So they pop out all soft and, and tender and they inflate themselves with water to expand that new shell. And it gets bigger than it was before. And then it very quickly over the course of hours uh, solidifies again. And then they it's that grow fast. into that. Yeah, it's only because they're extremely vulnerable in that stage. How how do we? As so human, how does the sushi restaurant catch them in that tight window? So they catch them as peelers, and then they, uh, they use for uh, these shedding houses. They call them, and so they've got these raceways of water, flowing water that goes through them, and they put them in sections based on how far, how close they are to shedding. And then it's an all-night proposition. They stand, stay up, and they every hour they go through and they Pick look up. at them. And as soon as they pop out, they got to get them out of the water and put them on ice. Born into bondage. Yeah, just right there. Yep. And so, 
if you don't get them in time, they start to harden up. They call them paper crabs. Uh, you can still eat them at that stage, but once they fully soft harden, paper, normal and hard shell peeler. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, I yeah, it's, it's fascinating. fascinating. I think it's really yeah. fascinating that when they molt, they inflate with. You say they they, they pump water pump into themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they act bigger than they are. So this exoskeleton hardens at a larger size for mm-hmm. them and to then they grow, grow into. into. And you'll know when you catch crabs uh, shortly after, it, it tends to cycle with the full moon. Uh, so there's a peak in molting at the full moon. Uh, and the week or two after that, you'll catch a lot of what they call poor crabs or thin crabs. And you'll you'll cook them up and there's just this big shell and it looks great. And then you crack them open and there's like hardly any meat in there. They missed the, they yeah. missed the party. They did it at the wrong time or something. Well, we caught them at the wrong time. Ah, so, Oh, oh, oh I see. They built this big shell, but they have not yet grown right. into it. I so you want to, you want to catch them when they're fat Yeah, uh, and, and they filled that new shell out. And well, we pulled some big jimmies out of your traps today and they were stained yellow and you're like, yep. these are, this is good. Why? Yeah. What did that mean to you? Well, they've been in that shell for a longer period of time. And so they're, you know, crawling across the bottom. They're getting iron deposits on there. They get kind of rusty looking. Uh, and so it just, and it gets thicker. And uh, when you catch a crab and turn it over and look at it, and it's got this, you know, beautiful white uh, belly. Uh, it's a pretty recent crab. It's kind of like looking at a puppy's teeth, you know, mm. that's all white. Yeah, it's very telling. Anything's teeth. Yeah bears and lions right yeah so a little bit of, a little bit of staining on that jimmy's yeah it's usually end. a good indication that it's not going to be a nice fat crab and full of meat well i'm excited to eat them yeah it should be good and i can't thank you enough for having us over for dinner tonight and even beyond that all of your hospitality and uh generous friendship you've provided us with in our stay here happy in the to Chesapeake have you guys Bay. yeah i'd love to share the the fascination of the Delmarva Peninsula. It's a, well, it's a couple place. more days of Sika hunting. Hopefully, I can I can get one down. Yeah, take it back to Montana with me. If not, I'm just going to steal a quarter off of yours in the garage. <laughs> Happy to share. So, I'll send you back with some meat. What did I What did I learn here? Sika deer are uh, not native, but not a detriment to anything, and they thrive here that we know about. We don't uh, look too closely, oh, wow. so <laughs> it's, it's we, likely they're having some well, impacts. But we assigned, we uh, deemed them as an opportunity to sportsmen, right? And kind of left it there. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And uh, death to nutria. Cheers to the successful eradication of nutria in the. Is it just the? Is it the Delmar Peninsula claiming that now? Or Blackwater, is it? Uh, no, we've we've claimed it for the whole Delmarva Peninsula, you know, and it's over the 20 years that project has been going, uh, you know, over 70 people uh, worked on it, you wow. know, field folks that were out there getting it done. So it was a huge effort, um, and a lot of people deserve a lot of credit. Yeah, you know? well, tip of the hat to everyone involved in that, and it's, it's pretty incredible that just two weeks ago they finally were made the final announcement to the public yeah it was, mission accomplished it was a good feeling well hopefully it remains that way and the chesapeake bay uh thrives and lives forever man thanks for having I us here so. steve i really appreciate it man yep welcome and welcome back anytime
can't wait.